Hello, it's Jamie here, and welcome back to Bloody Bites. It's where I do something without notes, a bit like my singing, but hopefully without the same catastrophic consequences. And today's subject is longbow, making a point. There are a few weapons that can dominate a battlefield that are force multipliers, game changers. We've had the machine gun, the tank. In latter years, we've had the drone, the helicopter. But before all of that came the longbow. For 200 years, it dominated the battlefield. And think about it. The average longbowman, English longbowman or Welsh longbowman, could fire six to seven arrows a minute. They carried up to 72 arrows on them in three sheaths, three quivers, 24 in each. So at that rate, a group of longbowmen, a corps of longbowmen at the Battle of Cressy, for example, in 1346, 7,000 longbowmen, or at Agincourt in 1415, there were about 6,500 longbowmen there, could lay down fire of up to 50,000 arrows a minute. In 10 to 12 minutes, they could fire half a million arrows. You can see what a devastating effect that sort of firepower would have on any sort of enemy. So not only was it that game changer that I've talked about, it was also a symbol of England. It really came about at the same time as the Hundred Years' War. It embedded itself in the consciousness and psyche of England, defined itself as the symbol of England in our battles with mainly France. Uh, you see as late as 1472 with the Statute of Westminster how important longbows were because for every tonne of imported goods into this country, Old English tonne that is, the ships coming in had to bring four U staves. That's how rare U's were at the time and that's how important they were to the British feats of arms on the continent of Europe. So whether it was as a force multiplier or as a symbol of England and of nationhood and of self-identity, the longbow was the key. And behind of all of that was this evolution. So what I want to talk about to start with is really the origins of the longbow. Because if you look back at the Battle of Hastings, 1066, the Anglo-Saxons didn't have bows. They fought with axes, with swords, with partisan spears but they didn't have the bow. The people who had the bow were the Normans, and they used horse archers in the same way that um, later on in the 12th century, Saladin, for example, used Kurdish horse archers and Persian horse archers against the Crusader armies heading for the Holy Land. So it was the Normans who brought it in, even though hunting bows, of course, have been around for a very long time, both in Britain and on the continent of Europe. There's a body that was found 3,300 BC was the date that uh, it died, and that was carrying a bow found in the Italian Alps. So they've been around, but as a weapon of war, that was more recent 
and the long bow certainly evolved from the short bow or the regular bow uh, from really from Wales is where it's thought they came from. But they were, weren't the six foot, six and a half foot longbow that was used with such military effect later on. The bow, as I said, evolved you know, during the reign of Henry III in 1252. You got the assize of arms. You got Henry III of England saying anyone who owned land worth two pounds or more had to be proficient had to train with a longbow. This was then carried on by Edward I in 1300, Edward Longshanks, of course, the conqueror of Wales, who said, right, on Sundays, it is the longbow that has to be practised. You forget other games, forget other sports. This is something that is important for England, for the people of England and for the reign of my kingdom, you know, the longbow is the key. So that was 1300. Later on, under Edward III, the man who really began the ascendancy of the longbow, you got in 1363 his edict that there should be no other sports played on a Sunday, no other sports played on holidays. People had to practice. You know, he made it mandatory to practice with a longbow. Any male between the age of 16 and 60, this was key. And he wanted the most proficient longbowman in his armies. And this is something that continued way after the longbow actually lost its efficacy. Even Henry VIII, with his Unlawful Games Act, decided that there were many games that he wouldn't allow, but it was the longbow he was still pushing, even though gunpowder was really coming to the fore. So all the way through English history, that period, the 13th, 14th century, and the 200 years in which the longbow dominated, the U-bow was the spine of England, the spine of its armies, the spine of its national self-identity. So you got the longbow being created, you got the laws that came in and the practice that came in with it, the need to train, because it took about 10 years or more to become totally proficient with the longbow. Through skeletons that have been found, you can see that longbowmen archers became almost deformed. Their bodies developed in a particular way. They had incredibly strong left arms. Their shoulders were huge. They got what were called osteophytes, spurs or growths on the bone, on their left wrist, on their left shoulder, on their draw fingers, on their right hand. They became very different individuals and they were hugely prized for their ability with a bow. This is what allowed English kings to conquer, English kings to defend the realm. It was the longbow. Just as basically uh, pikes became so important, halberds became important, the hands of those Swiss pikemen in the 15th century, so the longbow dominated for these centuries before that. But it's the battles that really define what the longbow is about and its impact, the effect that it had on history 
and on British campaigns abroad. I mentioned Edward III because it's really the Battle of Cressy that set the seal on the dominance of the longbow. This was August 1346, and Edward III took an army of about 12,000 to France. He took Caen, and as usual, he was pursued by a much larger French army. You had 25,000 men uh, against him. And it set the sort of tone of these plucky little English armies against much greater odds, much larger French armies. So what Edward did, he had his archers put in their stakes, he dug pits, and he waited for the enemy to advance. And what the French did with King Philip was send forward their Genoese crossbowmen. And the trouble with the crossbows is they took longer to reload. They couldn't do the six to seven uh, rounds a minute, if you like, that the longbow could achieve. And they didn't have the range. You had to aim at the enemy and fire, whereas the longbow had a range of up to 300 meters. You could fire it in the air or direct at the enemy. It could penetrate plate armor at 220 meters. So it was an incredibly powerful weapon. And against mass charges of cavalry and knights, it was devastating. So these Genoese archers came forward from the French. Uh, they were essentially mercenaries, and they had cover, they had shields, but the longbow, with its bodkin head, its very sharp head, managed to penetrate those shields and decimate the Genoese bowmen. Then the French cavalry charged, the Genoese bowmen couldn't get out of the way, so they were crushed beneath the charge. The French cavalry were hit massively by the 7,000 Welsh bowmen who were mostly prevalent at the time, fell in the pits and were there finished off there. And they reckon that about 16 charges were made by the French cavalry, each wave hitting the one in front as it tried to retreat. The command and control was not good, but that set the scene. You then got the Battle of Poitiers, and that was led by the Black Prince, Edward's son. That was a devastating blow to the French as well. This was 1356. It was a September day, and the French again charged, and the Black Prince had placed his archers in thickets and copses, uh, in front of the advance. The French weren't fully up to strength. It started as a, an army of 25,000, but the number of men who actually reached the front because some were left behind uh, was only about 12,000. Uh, the Black Prince had 6,000 men. Um, most of these were actually archers. They managed to completely decimate uh, the French cavalry. Edward then sent his cavalry around to outflank the French and managed to capture uh, the King of France. And King John of France was then ransomed later on in 1360 for three million crowns, which was way beyond the French national income, the crown's income. So it shows the success of the English archers and how they again dominated warfare 
at that time. You then move on to 1415, St. Crispin's Day, October the 25th, and Agincourt. And this was King Henry V. And it's an astonishing battle, an astonishing triumph, feat of arms, because again, it was a tiny English army. You know, you had Henry, who by this stage, he had started out with an army of 12,000. He had left 2,000 or so at the... uh, town of Harfleur to garrison it. 2,000 of his men had died from dysentery and disease. So he was down to about 8,000, but 6,500 of those were archers. And they provoked the French by firing arrows. The French knights charged. There were about 10,000 French knights and men of arms. And of those French knights, 6,000 of them were killed because of this incredible barrage. You know, it was possible within 10 to 12 minutes for 6,500 archers to lay down half a million arrows. And these were the arrows available to them. And then there were supplies coming from the rear, from the baggage trains. So it was extraordinary weight of fire that came down on the French. And they were massacred. Uh, they had a 1,000... Uh, taken prisoner. So there were other prisoners. There there was a great scandal really over, and it's still talked of to this day because Henry ordered the killing of prisoners because he thought the French would regroup as he made his way across the Somme to try to get to the coast. And of course there were French troops in reserve. This was an army of 25,000. His 8,000 men were facing. So he couldn't guard his prisoners. This is a constant problem uh, for even modern armies because you take the British army commandos that raided Saint-Nazaire in 1942, they were told not to take prisoners. The 101st and 82nd Elborn that were jumping behind Utah Beach in June 1944, they were told not to take prisoners because it's very hard to accept prisoners if you're fighting a 360-degree conflict in the modern war zone, if you're skirmishing, if you don't have rear echelons to take your prisoners. And so it was at the time of Henry V and Agincourt. He couldn't spare the men to guard prisoners. And even though this was seen as dishonourable, killing the prisoners by his own English knights, it, it was something that became an imperative because he simply couldn't guard them. Now, this is very different to the legal and moral issues of taking prisoners and then murdering them uh, if you have an SS officer in charge and it's quite possible to hand them back to the rear and that doesn't happen. So this is a conundrum that has existed in warfare for centuries, but it was certainly a problem that confronted Henry V at Agincourt. As we can see in those three battles, it became evident that it was the longbow that triumphed, the longbow that dominated. And French knights, French feats of arms, the charging with knights, with lances, was basically a a war tactic, a battle tactic that wasn't going to succeed against the longbow. And this is why the longbow imprinted itself 
on the national psyche and on history throughout the 14th, 15th centuries. But of course, by the 15th century, what was happening? Gunpowder was beginning to come in. And you can see by the middle of the 15th century, at the Battle of Castillon, for example, the idea that cannons were going to take over. You know, here was an English army that was beaten and pushed back and its archers were ineffective because it came up against French cannon. So this was the change, even though Henry VIII, as I said, in the 16th century, clung so desperately to the idea that the longbow could still uh, succeed on the battlefield. And so it slowly died out in the same way that it has slowly evolved, so it basically crumbled and faded into history. Even in 1644, at the Battle of Tippermuir uh, in Scotland, you saw a few longbows being taken out of retirement and used again. But by that stage, it was far too late, and they were never going to swing a battle in the favour of those who used it. So that's really a summary of the longbow and its history and the impact that it made. For a postscript, what I'd like to talk about is really the bow today because there are hunting bows and there are crossbows and perhaps it's the crossbow that has survived better than the conventional bow or even the short bow in terms of combat. In 1565, for example, in the Great Siege of Malta, you saw crossbows coming out of retirement, even though it was the age of the arquebus. You saw the Grand Master of the Knights of St. John, Jean Parisot de la Valette, ordering crossbows to be used. It was raining. The Turks thought they had the advantage when they attacked the forts of the Knights of St. John, but then they were hit by quarrels of crossbow fire. And hundreds of Turks were killed, so it was still effective. Uh, back in the 1990s, uh, during the Yugoslav civil war, you had Serb special forces employing the crossbow against the Croats, and, and many Croatian troops fled because they were hit by crossbow bolts fired by Serb special forces. So if you want silent killing, if you want stealth, if you want to spread psychological terror uh, throughout the enemy camp, you'll find that the bow, whether it's a recurved bow, a short bow, or the crossbow, still has a place in more specialist tactics in modern warfare. So that is the brief history of the longbow. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton, his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe, it's free, to our podcast on the app you use and to our mailing list via our website. This is very important as it boosts our rankings in the podcast charts. Thank you and good luck. Good luck.